Welcome to Safety Talk. Personal safety expert Pete Canavan shares his insights and interviews experts who provide simple and effective tips, techniques, and technologies to keep you safe and secure both online and off. Here's Pete. Hello, and welcome to Safety Talk. I am your host and personal safety expert Pete Canavan. I'm joined by my colleague, branding and social media expert, Neil Haley. Neil, how are you on this fine day? Good, Pete. How are you? Oh, you know, busy, busy. I'm trying to recover from my little West Coast excursion last week, which I'll have to talk to you a little bit about. I was out at the uh, Safe Schools Conference yeah. last week and uh, did a couple of workshops out there. It was fantastic. Met a lot of neat people. So, uh, yes. you know, first thing we always do on the show is we talk a little bit about, you know, current safety uh, sort of things that are in the news or what uh, people need to kind of maybe worry a little bit about this time of year. And now that we're in the summer months, you know, there's a whole range of sort of safety and health related things that can surface. And one of those is dehydration. And, you know, people don't maybe think that's that much of a big deal. Oh yeah, I drink water, et cetera. But I want to relay a real quick story to, to the audience. And that is last week, uh, I was home here and my son came down from upstairs to get something to eat. It was late at night. And he's telling me how he's not, he hasn't been feeling that good and he was a little, you know, dizzy and he was hungry and so he wanted to eat something because he thought maybe he hadn't eaten that much and that was what was going on. So he's sitting in front of the microwave and uh, we're talking and all of a sudden he just collapsed and fell down, oh slammed his head against the uh, kitchen cabinet. Thank God he missed the granite countertop uh, and started convulsing. And as a parent, I mean, this absolutely scared the living daylights out of me because, you know, you've got your child there now convulsing on the floor in front of you. Sounds like he was choking. His eyes are wide open. Oh, my gosh. And I was scared out of my mind. Now, I know first aid. I immediately, you know, got on the ground, rolled him onto his side, made sure his airway was clear and, you know, started slapping him and, you know, calling his name and uh, screaming for my wife. And about 30 seconds later, obviously about the longest 30 seconds of my life, he finally came to and he's like, dad, wh what are you doing in my face? And I said to him, uh, I'm in your face because you just passed out and you were convulsing. He's like, yeah, he's like, it was the weirdest thing. Like I saw, you know, darkness closing in around me and then that was it. Wow. So I got him, I got him up after, you know, I got him sit there for a few minutes, got him up, got some ice pack, put it on his head that he smacked his head. And uh, sat him down and started, you know, going through different concussion tests and talking to him about some things. And it was really scary because he screwed up saying the alphabet. And oh anybody goodness. that knows anything about brain injury, concussions, that sort of thing, uh, you know, you ask people like their name, what year it is, who the president is, a few other kind of things. Reciting the alphabet is one of them. And uh, when he screwed that up at the end, I was like, wow. And after he did it, he said, um, Dad, I, I screwed that up, didn't I? <laughs> I said, uh, yeah, you did, bud. And he just kind of sat back and went like, whoa. So obviously, you know, we pumped him full of water and Gatorade and, uh, and I made sure everything was okay. And I, I went to, I had him, you know, to the doctor the next day. We had him checked out. I monitored him all night. But the bottom line is, you know, dehydration is no joke. And the reason why it happened was because he went fishing all day with his buddies. They were on a boat. Actually, they were on kayaks. So he was expending a lot of energy. He had like one glass of water, a huge, a huge thing of iced tea, which is a diuretic. It will dehydrate you of tea, just like coffee, and uh, a sandwich. And that's all he had all day. So it was really 
you know, a, sort of a perfect storm of bad things that happened. It was literally 95 degrees here in the Northeast as it has been in much of the country. It's been hot as all heck. And uh, so I just want to tell people, you know, you better make sure you're hydrated. Young, old, it doesn't matter. Uh, you need to make sure you're hydrated. So that's kind of the first thing I want to talk about just real quick. And then we're always looking at what's going on in the news and some scary things. And unfortunately, there was uh, a student, 21-year-old young woman from Old Miss that was found dead this weekend. Uh, she had been, I guess, kidnapped and assaulted, and she was found dead this weekend. Uh, we've had so many things happening, you know, at college campuses, near college campuses, two young people. And it's a, it's a something where you've got to always be aware of what's going on around you. You can't be distracted. And just when you think you've heard it all, and we were just talking a little bit before the show here, a nursing home was, was somebody, a couple of people were killed in a nursing home this weekend. Somebody shot a 79-year-old lady and an 82-year-old guy, seriously, in a nursing home. So just when we thought we've heard everything, oh my haven't heard everything. So vigilance is the name of the game. So that's as far as I'm going to talk about that today, but just want to let people know, look, there are many things that are threats to your safety, both from nature and from man. And the bottom line is you've got to be aware of all of it. And so our guest today, uh, we're going to now get into this because he's somebody who deals with a very important concern that many parents and students have, and that's college safety. And that's something that I'm very passionate about as well. Because college is a time when our sons and daughters, they go off and begin to experience things by themselves, away from home, you know, and as parents, you know, we're no longer around to assist them if there's a problem. And so today's guest helps parents sleep a little bit better at night. Uh, this gentleman has dedicated his life to public safety, starting as an EMT when he was just 16 years old. Uh, when he went off to college in Vermont, he continued that and joined his campus rescue squad. And then for 25 years, he has actually been certified in advanced life care provider in multiple states. He's also worked as a police officer, uh, as a patrolman, as a detective, as a sergeant, as a tactical officer, as a police academy instructor, and actually, very interestingly, uh, also as a traffic crash uh, reconstructionist, which I thought was kind of neat. Uh, he earned his master's in business administration in 2009 uh, and began a security consulting business called Cygnus Security Consulting in 2010. Our business uh, provides comprehensive real-world security assessments and solutions for small business for medium-sized businesses. So in 2015, he became the Director of Public Safety and Emergency Management at St. Michael's College in Vermont. And he's certified as an Emergency Management Director in that state. And he also teaches at the college in addition to his regular duties. So is that all? <laughs> uh, no, but that'll do for now. Uh, so it's my pleasure to welcome the Safety Talk, uh, Doug Babcock. Thanks for being on the show, Doug. Pleasure to be here. Thank you much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so glad because, you know, improving safety and security is what we're all about here. And, you know, one of my passions is college safety and campus safety. So I'm, I'm excited to have somebody like yourself on to talk about that because I've worked as a university public safety officer, I've seen very interesting things happen. Obviously, as somebody who's even higher up in the chain, you're seeing everything uh, that's going on there. And uh, I mean, you're certainly going to agree that it's a challenge to, to keep students safe, both from, from themselves <laughs> and, and others, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Um, you know, and campus safety is always one of the top considerations that you know, parents are looking at, you know, they're, they're, you know, they want their sons and daughters to be safe. And it's a hard thing to do today. I mean, as I just mentioned at the top of the show here, you know, you have threats that happen all over the place, no matter where you are, no matter who you are. And so, you know, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into that, uh, specifically with 
college campuses today. And I know there are many, many risks out there. Uh, but in your professional experience, what would you say that you have seen has been one of or maybe the, the biggest risk that students are facing on today's campuses? The, the, the biggest risk of student death is actually accidents. And half of all accidents or injuries on campus are alcohol related. So one of the first things I point to is substance use, is alcohol and, and substance use. And these are folks who, as we mentioned before the show, um, they have the, the enough capacity to get into trouble and physiologically, uh, brain development-wise, not quite enough to get out of it sometimes. And then you add alcohol and that, that becomes one of the, the biggest risks they face. Uh, the second leading cause of death across college campuses is actually suicide, and mental health is a huge, uh, huge issue, not only uh, in terms of cause of death, but also in terms of quality of life and academic success. When we get down to interpersonal violence or, or violence, like uh, everyone is worried about active shooter events, which are threats, but they're actually some of the least likely events to occur. Wow. Even a lot in, uh, in, in the news. But um, the, the reality is that statistics show that you're four times as, almost four times as likely to die from cancer as you are from right. shooter. And I think, Douglas, when you think about, you talk about active shooter and how you have to be prepared because you never know if it's going to be you. It's almost like preparing for the, when you get on a flight and there's a chance it could crash, but it's very, very slim. Every day, we, they, every time you're on that flight, you're prepared and there could be a crash. The same thing when I talk about active shooter. Yes, you better have all the proper plans. You better have all the right security because if it happens on your campus, then you better have been prepared. But it might never happen on your campus. So that's the that, that's the the difference, I guess, in the fact that it could be so horrible and horrific. You better be ready, like a Virginia Tech or some other uh, horrific uh, mass violence. But however, it might never happen to your campus ever. And and your parallel is exactly right. There has not been a significant fatal uh, plane crash in the United States in the last ten years, but. We all worry about if, you, if there's been one fatality, uh, but there hasn't been a single plane crash inside the continental U.S., but that's what we all worry about and we prepare for. Uh, the same is true in active shooter in terms of the number of people in the country, the amount of geographical square miles we have. You're twice as likely to be struck by lightning, but that doesn't mean that you can ignore it and say it's not going to happen. It's something you've got to balance because you don't want to live your life in a prison for something that's very unlikely to happen, but you don't want to be exposed should you be in that moment in that, in that time. It's a balance. Now, like I've seen that statistics have said, you know, there's really only about maybe a 10% chance when you stack it up against all the other things that are out there. Yet so much attention has been given to it. I think just because of the sheer perhaps horror of it or yeah. the threat of what would happen if nothing is done and then something happens. But I think we are sort of maybe missing the boat a little bit or not doing as much as we can for the other 90% of the things that can happen. Things like wildfires and tornadoes and snowstorms. I mean, acts of nature that can have right. a problem and not necessarily things like an active shooter, which again, 
we spend so much time focusing on, but it doesn't mean that anything else is that less deadly, whether it's dehydration, whether it's, uh, you know, being in a car crash or some other, you know, form of, of us being hurt or killed. You know, fires are a huge problem on college campuses, and a lot of people don't realize that. Um, you don't think about it because we don't talk about it, but yet that's something that people should be educating students about fire safety and cooking safety and electrical safety just as much, if not more, than active shooters. Right. And, and that, sometimes that varies based on where you're going to college. If you're out in California or Arizona, wildfires are a huge concern. Uh, if you're up in Minnesota, then exposure to the elements is, is a huge concern. As a matter of fact, here in Vermont, uh, in February of 2019, a student uh, of a different university left, was traveling from party to party and was not dressed for the weather and ended up freezing to death outside uh, with the medical examiner determined that acute alcohol intoxication and hypothermia were the two causes of death. It was just another winter night where everybody was partying until he wandered out exposed to the elements and, and under the influence. And People die faster from elements than anything. Exposure yeah. will kill you quicker than anything. Absolutely right. And then, and and those are the things that we're talking about that are fatal incidents. Not even the 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 things we survive. The the one of the most significant causes of harm on a on a college campus is sexual assault, and that's underreported. But estimates run somewhere around the twenty five percent of all female students and up to ten percent of all students are sexually assaulted during at some point during their four years in college. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And there's, those are scary numbers. That's absolutely. I mean, and, and how do you stop it? Because when alcohol mixes with everything else and how can we trust what's the truth and not the truth? It's very interesting. I had a guest on one of my shows. It was an author and she wrote a book about, you know, what could happen to a guy if the girl is intoxicated and she gives content, consent after she's intoxicated, how that could become rape. Those were not thoughts when I was in college, for sure, and is coming out more and more, which is an interesting situation. We have to educate, and it's great these reportings are happening, but then that makes your job very hard when those reports come out, right? Uh, very much so. And in fact, where the Department of Education, which issues guidance on these for colleges, is uh, conflicted from one administration to the next, it, every, the goalposts are moving for everybody. And sometimes there's just no good way to keep track of who said what and what standard you're measured against, maybe until after the fact. And, uh, and you know, th there's things that all of us would not want to go back 20 years into our youth and be judged now for what we did because of what was then a social norm. Unfortunately, we're seeing that happen all the times in the political Excellent. arena, and it's not fair. It is not fair to anybody, and I don't care what side of political spectrum you sit on. It is not fair to be judging somebody on today's standards for something they did 20 or 30 or 40 years prior. It's insane. Anybody could have something found in their past that wasn't perfect, you know, and that's what they, they gravitate to. Uh, with regard to the, the sexual assault side of things, uh, I've been, I've talked a little bit about in the past about how some of that education component needs to be 
focused on the guys. Yes. It seems like we focus so much on yes. the women and, yes. you know, and why were you drunk and were you giving them signs? You know what? That's something that is only one half of the story. The other half of the story is the guy who's in the situation who should be thinking more so than feeling to a certain extent about, hey, you know, this girl is drunk. I've been drinking, you know. I think maybe things might progress, but what happens if I'm getting the wrong signals and this isn't going to pan out the way that I expect? And really, that's very, very hard to do because, you know, <laughs> hormones are flying, right? The kids are, are excited. They're drinking. They're at college. They're away. They don't have parental supervision. They're, they're thinking, you know what? I can do what I want when I want. And that becomes a big problem. And I think we need to focus a little bit more on the education of what the ramifications are on the men, on the boys, on the, the other side but of this. That's politically a way you can't say that, Pete. And it really will come down to bite you, Douglas, am I right, based on what they want, the protection of standards with sexual assault now, right? Am I correct about that? Or is it keep changing? Well, where, where, I, where I agree with Pete is that to move the education, but down into the, the 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old range, one of the things I struggle with is the, the day you show up on my campus at 18 as a first-year student, you represent my college. Whatever you do, if you help a little old lady across the street, if you pass a fake ID at the, at the convenience store, either way, you represent my college. That's not fair on day one to my college nor is it reasonable to believe that the first day you don't live under your parents' roof, you know how to make every good decision in the world. It, it does become a challenge, but I think there's ways to word it and ways to construct the training so that we're not victim-blaming, we're not man-hating, we're, we're walking a line about how we teach people to be respectful and responsible adults without getting into a whole lot of political rhetoric, but it's not easy and, it, and it, it's unfair that it's at the college level when that, those formative years are really 12, 13, 14, 15, what they're seeing on YouTube, what they're hearing in the locker room, what they're getting from their siblings and their, their cohort growing up. When they enter into this new realm at 18, 19, have no ties and have to establish all of these social bonds and boundaries all on the fly, a lot of that formation is already done and we don't have any control over it. We're, you know, trying to, trying to close the barn door after the, after the horses are out. And one of the things is, and you just mentioned it, and that's exactly where I was going to talk, is about personal boundaries and comfort zones. People don't think about it, young or old. I don't care who you are. Most people don't think about that personal boundary. Like how far is too far, whether it's somebody getting up in your face about something, or if it's somebody who's approaching you at a party, who's being really aggressive, or if it's something that's happened to you on the street or wherever you happen to be, you need to be able to define what is comfortable and what is uncomfortable and know right. where that line is in the sand. And most people don't know it. So if you don't know where it is, how can you possibly recognize it when somebody crosses it? Yes. Societal that's a big norms. problem. Yeah, right. And also societal norms, Pete, that again, what 
a certain society or certain community looks at is okay might not be okay in another community and they're all meshed into one school, one college. Right. Yeah. A lot of complications. There's a a saying I learned years ago as a, as the, uh, when I was the parent of a young child, which is we spend the first two years of our child's life teaching them to walk and talk and the next 16 years of life telling them to shut up and sit down. That's right. (laughs) And, and we teach them, we, we, we want to teach them, and, and, I'll, and this is a big generalization, we, but we want to teach them there is a time to challenge, there is a time to question, and there is a time to shut up and do what you're told. But again, the, the, the formative process and the physiological developmental stage that college students in particular are at, that's not an exact science for them. And uh, the, the question of, well, I, I didn't, want to be that person or I wanted to be accepted or I didn't think it was that much of a problem at the time or even just the, the basic physiological response of fight, flight or freeze and not having conditioned the, themselves to what if I'm in this situation versus what if I'm in that situation and having a way for their brain to know how to respond all of those are factors that just make this a very complicated situation. You've got to ask yourself the tough questions before you need the answer. Because exactly. now, and, and it's hard to do, but you have to do it because what that does, and you know, as, a, as you know, working as a police officer, it shortens your reaction time dramatically. There basically is no reaction time. If you've, had, no. if you've said to yourself, in this situation, if this happens, this is what I'm going to do. And then that situation happens, you know what you're going to do. You don't have to think about it. You just react. And that could save your life. It could do a lot of different things that are going to be beneficial to you. But most people don't take the time, young or old, students or not, to think about it. You know, what would, what would I do in this situation? What would I do in that situation? And simply taking a little bit of time. And you're not being paranoid. You're being proactive. And you're being realistic. Because, again, if you – anybody who's ever been involved in any sort of tragedy – they all say the same thing afterwards. I never thought it would happen to me. I never thought it would happen around me. And so that's a, a, a thread that runs through a lot of this. And so just by saying, ah, it's never going to happen to me. No, that's what everybody else has ever said <laughs> that's before something has happened. So scary stuff. Now, parents, obviously, students, they're interested. There's different places that um, they can go and get information about, you know, college campus safety. Um, where do you recommend? I mean, there's, there are different like annual reports and they analyze colleges and stuff. Yeah. The, the foundation report is called the annual safety report. Federal law requires that every school that accepts federal money for, um, for education, education dollars files an annual safety report. It has information about, uh, the Cleary Act, Title IX, the Violence Against Women Act, fire safety, it references specific crimes that are, are reportable and it requires information about preventative programs regarding Title IX sexual assault, things like that. And it, it offers at least to some level an apples to apples comparison where you can say X number of crimes occur, of this type occurred on the campus. Um, but there's also limitations to what that document can do. Um, it doesn't there are a lot of things that it misses and federal law is kind of a, it's kind of a sledgehammer to swat a fly. 
you, you, you might miss some of the, the faster moving and smaller stuff that really affects the quality of life. Um, so I recommend some other things also, which would include um, going to the school website, looking at the calendar and seeing what kind of events the college is bringing to the campus. What do they bring for speakers? What do they bring for outside groups? What do they have on their social media posts regarding uh, mental health awareness or sexual assault awareness, self-defense training, um, contacting their uh, mental health or their personal counseling or, the, or their wellness center and finding out what kind of resources are available. Are, are there student groups? Are there, uh, are, are there professional services? Are they 24-hour? How do they cover after-hour if they're not? Um, a lot of schools, a lot of smaller schools, uh, people are wearing multiple hats. So it's good to know what kinds of uh, systems are set up at the school so you can kind of have a base of what you expect for a response. One thing, Douglas, you talked about is, first of all, we talked about sexual assault, but then the alcohol and substance abuse. When we talk about marijuana and how it's legalized in many different uh, states now, how do you deal with that with college students, especially when a lot of college campuses, even if the state has legalized it, has not allowed it to be legalized on campus? And that's exactly right. Federal law is still, marijuana is still legal. And if a college accepts federal dollars, then the college can't allow marijuana use on campus. So it becomes down to a college policy. And the enforcement can take several different forms if the college as their own uh, justice, like restorative justice or a student conduct system, then students can go through that process. It has to be clearly spelled out in the code of conduct or the rules and regulations, which most colleges require that students sign off on. Whether it's uh, they don't read it, but they sign off on it. <laughs> that's exactly it. You know the the terms of service for you know this app or that you know or your phone. We never read it, but we check the box anyway. Mm -hmm. And what that ends up requiring is good working relationships with the student conduct workers or the public safety to explain, hey, I know you didn't read that. And I understand that. But here's, some, here's the way the rule actually works. A lot of colleges have these systems set up to be educative and informative rather than punitive. And that's a, a good thing where there's this tension between what the law is for the state, the law is for the feds. Um, but in the end, it, um, you know, if, a, if by college policy, they're not allowed to have it, then it's something that, uh, you know, they'll have to, the college individually have to figure out. In, in Vermont, it's the same as alcohol. Over 21, you can possess a less than an ounce, but under 21, you can't. So we're, it's just as easy for, on our campus, for us to flush, you know, their, their slice of weed or their dime bag down the toilet as it is to pour out the, the, the 10 beers we found in their fridge. And that becomes a judgment call based on who it is, what was going on, you know, what does that officer think at the time? You know, is this something that, you know, okay, party's over, we're dumping this out, we're getting rid of this, yeah. don't do it again. It probably will. Don't do it again, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Right. Because like you said, you want them to be informed about it and you're not trying to put a blemish on anybody's permanent record. You know, they're at college for an education. And a lot of these kids don't know, uh, I know that you do, but a lot of kids don't know that if you get convicted of some of a drug related crime, you lose any scholarship funds. 
So if you're going to school and you've got a scholarship and you get caught, bye-bye scholarship, bye-bye college potentially. Quite, quite potentially, yeah. And, uh, and there are long, the long-lasting repercussions. Uh, uh, apply, I, I, I've had to help a student by, who was applying for the bar, you know, taking the bar exam out in a different state, 10 years after they were an undergraduate, they probably never thought their freshman or sophomore year that they were ever going to try and be a lawyer. Ten years later, they're applying to the bar, and they had to explain, uh, well, uh, on our campus, we called it a jungle juice incident. There okay. was a lot of Kool-Aid and a lot of whatever else got poured in. And this person had to go get, get the report. Uh, we had to redact everybody else out of it, but he had to supply it to the bar. I faced this incident as an undergraduate. Here's my role in supplying underage people with alcohol. And the bar gets to decide whether you can practice what you just finished your degree in or not. Uh, and, and, and then you have that question all through your career. And, and, that, and that's, on, that's on that side of the fence. Try applying to be a cop or a federal agent. Forget it. I'm explaining to do. And it may not go your way. But again, at, at 18, 19, 20, we may not be thinking with no, no. enough to, to process that. And that just goes back to the importance of educating and know the repercussions of what ha- is going to happen. If you're right. in a situation, hey, you're going to ruin your life. Well, yes, you might ruin your life by drinking alcohol or marijuana, but you also ruin your life on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram from something you posted. So you have to understand any repercussions or actions. And it's a lot different than when we grew up. We made mistakes like that. They all got, you know, water over the under the bridge it's fine everything's cool so they weren't on the internet forever right that's that's one thing but ultimately not even now i'm talking about all the other things we're talking about it was not as a big deal now Mm -hmm. it is a big deal so kids have to make better decisions which as you said what's the percent percentage of kids that are you bust every year with alcohol and drugs on your as a percentage of the student body (laughs) uh oh yeah i i would in a, in a study we did on campus, uh, we actually were pretty close to the national average of 33% of our students were regular cannabis users. Uh, that's defined as, as once a month or more. And the, the national average, depending on the study, varies from 30 to, to 37, 38. And understanding that, uh, you know, Imagine our school doesn't offer this, but I've seen other schools that offer a criminal justice major. And oh, I just graduated, and I go for my 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 uh, interview with the police department. And yeah, but I smoked weed, you know, eighteen months ago or six months ago, um, it, or the, these other complications like uh, you know acting out a little bit. These are tough political times, and a lot of students are very passionate about what's going on on campus for or against one topic or another. If somebody acts out, you know, toss a couple of, you know, cans of liquid courage in you and then have some kind of dispute with another student about their political stance. And that might result in having to answer that question. And again, exactly what you said, Neil, it, it matters a lot more now. Uh, you know, Pete, when you said it, it lasts on the internet, I, I remember this, we all remember this, we're of the age. When, when we were teenagers, if we wanted to, to insult somebody or say something bad about them, we'd be either stronger or faster than them. 
or we kept their mouths shut. Yep. Didn't want to get beat up. Now we have the internet. We can put anything anywhere. A thousand people can like it from 2,000 miles away and right. no pulling it back. And those words matter a lot more. I said things when I was in seventh grade that I'm not proud of now, but nobody is out there to, to splash it up on a website and say, Doug said this. And I'm a lot freer to uh, have learned my lesson and move on than kids these days where everything's on video, whether they're recording it or not, whether they post it on social media or not, somebody has it. And somebody out there is looking for your eighth grade yearbook right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be true. I'm sure. It's crazy though. It is crazy. What, what, what we've seen happen Um, with regard to the safety side of things. um, One of the things that I think might, maybe help people determine whether or not they should be also looking into a particular school to go to um, would be to actually maybe contact the local police department there and say, Hey, how many incidents, you know, are you guys having there? Now they may or may not be able to tell you, but if they say, Oh, that's cool. You know, <laughs> oh, you know what? Maybe I don't want my kid going there. If they say, Oh yeah, no, there's never any problem there. Their public safety department handles it. Their on campus police handles it. You know, we have very little contact with them or whatever. You're going to feel really good as a parent, or as a student, to go to that particular school that's in that town. Right. And it's really important to understand the relationship that a public safety department on a campus has with the local police department. If it's antagonistic, then uh, the students may get a harsher treatment or may get less service when the police are called compared to an agency that works really well with their local police department and, the, and when they're there together, the officers might kind of get together and say, hey, look, here's the situation. Is this something, if, you, if we leave this on campus with you, will you guys handle this and do right by it? Uh, or the officers might agree, hey, this person's getting beyond our control, and maybe the lesson is, you know, you take them this time. Cuff them and stuff them. Learn Absolutely. Them. Yeah, and it's, it's scary, but you know what? Some kids, that's, that's what they need. So there are so many things that obviously are risks to personal safety, not just on campus, but all over the place. But on a college campus, are there things that you recommend for students to either take in terms of classes or devices that they carry, maybe personal safety alarms or things of that nature that maybe parents can say, oh, yeah, you know, maybe I should think about getting my kid there. Because I mean, I have a whole litany. I have a whole list of of things that I recommend, but I want to hear what you have to say. Well, and and some of it comes down to availability. Um, One of the first things I hear almost all the time is parents are really glad to see the blue lights on campus or the the towers that have the button that you can push. And uh, I I don't want to be demeaning. And at one time, it was good that we at least had those. But they're really now most often considered security theater. They look good, but there's not a whole lot of use to them. If you're actually being chased by somebody. Yeah can't touch it and go, I'm on base and right. not be attacked. Yeah, or you, or you, you jump, you hit the button and what do you can do? Like, you know, straddle the pole and hold on for dear life until help comes. I think right. they're a joke anymore. I'm with you. Yeah, exactly. Um, they, they had their purpose and there was a time when the technology was as good as it is, you know, as good as it got. Uh, m- much more prevalent these days, uh, colleges are using apps that people can download to their phones 
their smartphones and be able to um, access campus resources, uh, non-emergency resources, emergency resources, have parents follow them or friends follow them with GPS tracking. Um, but even those, I want uh, people to understand that most colleges have something like that, but even so, it, um, you still need 30 seconds right. to your phone to you know, un undo the passcode, shift to the page that has the app, open the app, it takes a minute to load. It's too long. And start going through the menu inside the app. All of that time is some, and uh, anyone that's familiar with law enforcement and the use of deadly force knows the, the, like a 21 foot rule of, you know, basically if anyone's inside 21 feet, they can get to you before you have the chance to draw any kind of effective defense. Uh, if someone's chasing you or if you, uh, which is the, like the, the most likely scenario for sexual assault on campus is in an apartment, in a, in a, in a suite, in a bedroom with alcohol and just one right. and maybe two other people. And if you were in the middle of that kind of thing to try and grab your phone and start sorting through apps, like it raises, you know, or maybe not exactly so uh, there's a limitation even to that for the next like the, the fastest thing I've seen there's a, a couple companies that have like a push button if you remember the old uh, I've seen on TV commercials help I fall and then can't get up panic buttons that's exactly right and they can link to the phone they can link to uh, campus network they can link to a dashboard at the campus security dispatch office, and some of them can send a, send a distress signal and a location. Some of them can open up two-way communication. Some of them can be silent. Uh, there's a variety of things that you can do, but most often the college has to invest in having that device on their campus. Right. And it's not something that you can just buy and have one of these. And no, the infrastructure has to be in place. Exactly right. And, and they come with a cost and there's an upfront cost. And so you have to get, you know, the administration on board. They're great tools, but there are, it takes a process to get them set up. Parents should be aware of those options and ask, uh, is what, what options are available? What are the costs associated with them? If there's not an option you want, how, who would we have to talk to? Yes. Most, most campus safety directors Love it when somebody goes and tells their boss the idea that the director themselves was probably pitching for the last couple of years and just hasn't had the funding or the or the uh, you know the support to get from somewhere. Uh, no, and that's a that's a great great uh, you know sort of um, support system to have because if you can educate the parents about things and you could educate the public about these different devices that are available. And I'm familiar with a bunch. Neil is, I mean, I've been in safety and security a long, long time. Uh, some companies I work with that have exactly the devices that you're talking about and they are amazing. But like you said, you may have had this, you know, information because you maybe saw it somewhere or you saw it online or at a trade show or something like that and bring it back and, you know, try to pitch it to the powers that be that hold the purse strings. And they say, yeah. well, you know what? We don't have an extra X yeah. number of dollars in the, the budget fund. for it. Yeah. But now if you get a bunch of parents that all of a sudden they're all starting to ask for it, now they're going to have to sit up and take notice. Right. And that's, you know, and that's a great thing to have to sort of have the, the parents and the students in your corner because it's like, yes, this is what we need. Thank you for, you know, letting them know that this is something that you want, exactly. you know, cause it's going to make everybody safer. It makes complete, 
sense. Yeah. Well, at the now, end of Douglas, the day. When you talk about securing, we talk about your job protecting the entire campus, your team, your security team. What do you feel is the best way to do it, especially when people are listening across the country about campuses and their safety? Like talk about the overall job, not, not talking sexual assault. We're talking more of the surveillance part of this uh, process of the, of the campus. Yeah, basically what, yeah. what do you do to prepare for emergencies that maybe people don't even know about? Yeah. Well, so, so I'll say the biggest single thing that I do on my campus is I try to build relationships. Uh, and this, is, this seems like, sounds like you get you, you, 27 years, 29 years of public safety and you build relationships, but uh, I can have one, two, I can have eight officers on a shift at one time. If I have 1,600 students on campus, who's, who's going to win? I need to build a relationship where the students and the faculty and the staff know that they are a part of their security, of the campus security. Uh, we recently, it was a couple of years ago, we had an incident where somebody had gotten into the dorms and uh, it turned out to be a person with a history and some police involvement and things, you know, made the news. And I had students come to me. And they asked me, well, what are you doing to keep me safe? And I said, well, I put card access 24-7 on all of the dorm buildings. I have security cameras all over campus. I have officers patrolling in March cruisers. I have a, an app for your phone. I have an emergency operations plan. I have training and I have, but if one of the students opened the door and held it open for a person they didn't know was a student and belonged in that building, they defeated me are you doing to keep me safe on my campus? And the student kind of bristled back, but I was like, this is, this is the most important thing. This is, you've, you've heard this a thousand times in the airport. If you see something, say something. If, uh, if it looks odd, it probably is. Um, you're talking before about preparation, Pete, and, uh, and, uh, and how it's not paranoia. Uh, I actually tell people when I'm doing uh, self-defense training or, or uh, response to active shooter training, I want you to be paranoid for five minutes a day. I want you to be in some space and, you know, in the grocery store, in the bank, sitting at an intersection in heavy traffic where your car can't move and go, okay, this all goes wrong right now. What can I do in my classroom, in this lab versus that sterile classroom? What can I do right now if this all goes wrong? Those kinds of thoughts turn into, hey, we saw somebody and it didn't look right. Uh, I don't think they really owned the bike that I saw them taking out of the bike rack outside our dorm at seven in the morning. Turns out that person had an arrest warrant and we got them off of our campus because our students just didn't like the way this felt. That's the most effective we can be. 1,600 people telling us the problem is right here. You should look there and find, find what's going on there. Yeah. There's a lot more eyes on the ground for you. And if they are all you know, aware of the fact that they need to be contributing to the overall safety of that campus, that it, like, and that was a great thing that you said because you know what? It's like you've done everything that you could possibly do, but yet if something that 
has been enacted is thwarted because somebody piggybacked in on a swipe or they held the door open for somebody that they shouldn't, no security in the world is going to be able to do anything about that because you just defeated it. And so by educating them, I think that's that's great because letting them know, look, you're part of the solution. You know, Don't look at me as I'm part of the problem. Look at yourself as part of the solution to help everybody stay safer. Exactly right. And then when I have an emergency operations plan that we set up in emergency management, and I know how the campus would respond to a threat of severe weather, of uh, significant power outage, of uh, violence or domestic violence on campus, I know that my students will also be engaged in their part of that response. If I send out a message that says lockdown or shelter in place or evacuate this building because of a fire, if they're engaged in their, their part of the system and they're incorporated, they're going to go, public safety said I should leave now. And they'll pick up and leave versus, oh, this is another one of those stupid drills. They're always wasting our time and leaving us in the position of having to go in and use our resources and put our people at risk to find those folks that aren't part of the system and slowing down our response to potentially uh, not be able to mitigate the, the risk as fast because we have to spend time cleaning up what, uh, you know, what people left behind or, or didn't do because they weren't engaged and they didn't feel like they were part of the system. Douglas, with this anti-police officer movement, that's kind of disappeared. It's not as bad as it was last, you know, three years ago to now. I think it's kind of disappeared to another attack on someone else, but police officers were getting that <laughs> attack. How are you dealing with it, like, respect-wise, with, you know, freedom of speech, especially when you have a different rules on a campus that, hey, there's a way that you have to act as a student for this university that you could tell off a police officer in that city, but doing the same thing on a campus is different, right? Douglas, am I right on that fact of the respect factor and the core values that they signed to go to that university? It's a, that's a, a really important issue, and the communication is one of the most important things. Um, most, so liberal arts college, there's not a, uh, you don't sign saying, uh, you, you sign saying I'll obey the, the rules, again, we talked about how we don't actually read that, but part of an academic setting is that it's designed to enable critical thinking. That's actually what the most important thing a liberal arts college should be teaching, in, in, in my opinion, and the information I've gathered from other folks, is the, the understanding of when I should be challenging a norm. And for us, our, our department is not sworn and not armed, but we do wear body armor. We do uh, control and restrain pepper spray when, when necessary. And we look a whole lot like police officers. So we actually chose to go straight at the issues. I sat on a panel that was set up on the campus about taking a knee during the anthem. And it was brought on by one of our sports teams. And I went right into it and I said, I want to be on that panel. And I'm, I've dedicated my life. I'm a veteran of the United States Coast Guard. I'm a police officer. I am both of the groups that were targeted by that uh, protest, meaning uh, the, the veteran who most of the protesters said, we're not here about the veterans, we're here about the cops. So I was, I was the unintended as a veteran and I'm the intended as a police officer. And I sat next to one of the students who had taken a knee and I said, 
my life is dedicated to defending his right to criticize me because we must be able to communicate, learn from each other. And that opened up a, a dialogue on campus where there were a couple of events and it was, and like you said, Neil, it was uh, during a specific time frame. It's, it's uh, less prominent now. And I think there's some moderation. I think the pendulum's kind of swinging back a little bit and that's a good thing. Um, but there was some times when it was very contentious, but us going right out and, and addressing it rather than um, digging in on a, on a battle line of, uh, whether you know a social media hashtag or a uh, you know or issuing a position or not supporting a you know not supplying public safety officers at an event that was designed as a protest, we went right to it and said we're here because you have the right to speak. You should also listen to us, just as we are here listening to you. And on our campus, that was actually very effective in diffusing a lot of those situations. And the, um, I, I remember the, the quote from Dr. King, which was, in the end, we will not remember the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. When people are silent or when people are not communicating or they're turning a blind eye, folks will feel like they need to do more to get attention. When you address them, even disagreeing, but respectfully address them, they very often feel like they have been heard. And even if they don't have a complete agreement on the position, it moves the conversation and moves us past that hurdle. And uh, we end up with a lot better relationship for walking straight into that conflict and saying, we want to be part of this conversation rather than uh, building another wall around us, which is uh, right. You've seen you've seen walls as kind of a, a failing issue in various politics around. Yeah, well, it's it's true though. I mean, and, and you know, your focus on building relationships, I think, is absolutely the right approach because if you have a good relationship with all the you know the student body, with the faculty, with the town, with everybody, and there are open lines of communication, then when there is an issue or there's a hot topic or something that is, is, you know, contentious, something that's going on, you would hope that because of those relationships, you can figure out, okay, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Why is this happening? You know, and, and sort of, you know, take it from there. You can't turn a blind eye. You can't right. ignore problems because we all know ignoring a problem does not make it go away. It has to be dealt with, whether you deal with it head on or you figure out a way to sort of deal with it in a sort of a, a circumstantial way, but you still got to figure out a way. How do I deal with the issue, the person, the problem, right? And that kind of communication with us, you brought a great example with the community. Um, there was an event on campus and some of the organizers came to us and said, hey, this showed up on Facebook on a community page. There's a call for a whole bunch of people that we didn't anticipate and we're concerned that they're not going to do it the way our college does things. So we want to work with you to uh, publicize that this is a campus only event and not, and it was, and it was the people organizing it and in, in, in some level or another of protest about something we represent, but they came to us and said, we want your help in keeping this a campus only event so that this doesn't get out of hand because we want to have the educated, the informative, the growth experience 
not whatever we've seen on TV from insert, you know, university or college here. Right. Now, and it's, and so looking at, oh, is the, the school that you're at residential? Is it more, is it sort of out there a little bit in the non-residential space? Uh, what would be some differences between, you know, those two sorts of environments? Because you're in Vermont, you know, it's, it's a, not really, you know, there's not cities everywhere, right? <laughs> so um, it's, uh, and St. Michael's is there. So one of the things is, what are, what would you say are maybe some of the key differences for somebody who's maybe looking at a school to say, hey, you know, if you're going to a school in a, more in a residential area, here's some things that maybe you want to be more concerned with versus a school like yours that maybe is a little bit more, uh, you know, not, doesn't have the same sort of risks as like a, a school in a city, for example. Right. Well, and there's and there's a few different types of uh, residential. Uh, our school happens to be intent intends to be a four year residential campus, and that means that freshmen through seniors are expected to live on campus. For us, that offers a, a unique opportunity for community building and bonding, and a unique challenge in having wet areas on campus. These this housing is 21, 22 year olds. It is juniors and seniors. But the, the first and second year students, the underage students, have very easy access to that space. So we have to have policies and programs designed to keep the, the underage population from getting into trouble as much as we can, you know, uh, with, the, uh, with the easy access. Because there are spaces outdoors where, because it's a wet area, we're not carting. It's just outside and, and people can literally just stand there and and be drinking so it becomes something we have to be conscious of as opposed to a campus that only offers first and second year housing or first year housing and then you're expected to live out in the community on your own from there um, in the in the universities that are in larger cities it becomes even more of a challenge and i'll go back to that annual safety report those federal reporting requirements because an annual safety report has something called Cleary Geography. Cleary is one of the reporting laws that the feds put in place. The Department of Education requires us to report what happens on the geography that the college owns or controls or adjacent public property. But private property or public property on the other side of the street is not necessarily included. So students may be living in a private residence six or eight or ten to a house and nothing there is clearly reportable. The college would not know, not be required, not track, and may or may not have any influence over what happens in that space. And the entire junior and senior classes might be living in those situations. <clears throat> they might be in really rough neighborhoods or they might be the rough neighborhood depending <laughs> the type of student living there. And there's not a good way for parents to know that that kind of thing happens to students who are going to that university because they don't live on campus anymore. So it's one of the things that I saw that they, they would look at those exact, you know, the geography is like, is, was this on our campus? Yes. We got to report it. Was this not our campus? No, we don't have to report it. Right. And when you have the higher, you know, student, you know, the juniors and seniors, they're probably the ones that are, getting a little bit more, more rowdy. Uh, they're all doing more things and they're living off campus. 
right. your numbers could be skewed. You, you're not getting a full sort of, uh, you know, statistics on what's happening. Do you think maybe changing the requirements to include students regardless of where they are housed as long as they are enrolled full time is a realistic change to that? There's, there's all sorts of problems that come with the reporting requirements that are already in place. Uh, adding to them will probably add more confusion than anything else. Um, the, so it, what, what about, at what point do we have a student uh, that's required to report? Is it only if they're inside their residence, if it's not on a campus versus if they're just downtown at the bars? Is it because they're a full-time student, but they go to somebody else's house that's not affiliated with the college at all? And how would we get that data back? Uh, any, any data system, any information system is garbage in, garbage out. If we don't have a reporting system that can accurately capture what's going on, how will we provide useful information to, to parents or students in that annual safety report? Yeah, it is, it is tricky because, I mean, you would, you would hope that, like, in that situation, somebody's at another residence or they're out at a bar and they're assaulted at a bar and they get beat up. Well, that bar isn't campus property, but yet the student is enrolled full-time. Should that or should not be included? Well, if that's a town that my kid's going to and that's a bar that is known to be a, quote, maybe rough bar, I don't want my kid going there. I want to know if those things are around, but yet we, we don't have that information. And like you said, it's an imperfect system, no matter how you look at it. Um, it's always, I'm sure, evolving and, and changing. But uh, at least we do have something in place that gives us some sort of barometer that allows us to look at what's, what's happening. So uh, great, great questions, great answers. And uh, I really appreciate your, your insights, Doug. The, uh, you have any sort of last thoughts for our audience, parents, students? Uh, I, my, my basic philosophy is that personal security is an individual responsibility. We all have the obligation to be aware of our surroundings, to have ideas about what we're going to do, that at anywhere in the world at any time, we may be put in a situation and there's not necessarily going to be an official we can look to. Uh, even in the, the active shooter events inside cities, uh, response, the first officer on scene is often between two and six minutes from the start of the shooting. That's a lot of trigger pulling time, and that's in a, a high response area or high response system. Uh, and we've had students uh, from our campus that were in London during terror attacks, Paris during terror attacks, Chile during earthquakes. Anywhere you go, everyone has an individual responsibility for their own safety. That means we need to take the time, educate ourselves, be aware of our surroundings, be aware of opportunities to learn more on campus. Take these opportunities that your public safety department probably offers, that your campus offers, whether they're self-defense classes um, and financial awareness classes, non-safety issue, but something that a lot of kids get in trouble with also. And know that those lessons are yours to carry with you, regardless of whether you're on campus or off later in life. Excellent. Excellent. Well, for any of our listeners that uh, want inf any information about uh, the school, uh, where you're at, I'm sure they can find that online just by, you know, Googling the school, right? Right. And that's, um, so that, 
if they're interested in finding more about you uh, or about that, that's uh, the, just want to make sure I get the name of the school right here, right? It's St. St. Michael's College. St. Michael's College. In Colchester, Vermont. Very nice. So uh, any parents that may be interested in learning a little bit more and want to get a cheat sheet, uh, I have a cheat sheet for college students, college safety. You can go to guidetocollegesafety.com and get that. So, Doug, really appreciate you being on Safety Talk. Uh, any last words, Neil? And we'll No last words. It's very, very uh, informative. Uh, looking forward, Douglas prepared me for kind of things I'll be dealing with when I go to Cupic next week with Lensec. Uh, I'll be having a nice conversation with a lot of the officers, uh, investigators, to talk about our solution and how it's basically looking at not just the active shooter, but other fit possibilities they have to spot on campus to identify things with archive and things like that when situations occur. So, uh, so much information I got from Douglas today. Absolutely. Awesome. So thank you very much, Doug, for being on Safe Talk. Thanks, of course, to our listeners for tuning in. And to get more information as well as links to past episodes and latest news about safety, you can always go to safetytalkpodcast.com. So until next time, stay safe. Thanks for tuning in to Safety Talk. You can listen to past episodes and get the latest safety news at our website, safetytalkpodcast.com. Be sure to visit our other websites for free safety checklists and infographics. You can also sign up for free online self-defense training, learn about college campus safety, and find out more about Pete and how he can help educate your school or business through his speaking, workshops, seminars, and consulting. Subscribe to the Safety Talk podcast and never miss out on any new safety information. Until next time, stay safe.